according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Philippians. Returning this evening to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, looking at verses 8 and 9. Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And this is what we're going to be looking at here tonight as the mandate for application that comes in verse 9 once we have our thinking squared away as per the mandate from verse 8. And so that'll tie together the first third of the chapter and we'll be ready to wrap that up and then move on to the section that deals with finances uh, starting in verse 10 and following uh, once we get to that. Before we begin tonight though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and let's ask our Father for His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding, to bless our time of study. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who uh, leads us into the paths of righteousness. Father, we uh, just so look forward to learning what you have for us to learn tonight. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to take some question and answer time, though, before we get started. The microphone's ready to go, so... I don't believe I have any unresolved questions from last week or anything that came in by email. Uh, there was one that came in by email that was a Greek question, but I answered it real quickly on email. So to, it was a question related to the OS ending versus the ON ending on Cosmos. Is Cosmos the same as Cosmon? And the short answer was yes. They just take different endings depending on how they're used in the, in the sentence. So we were dealing with that. Uh, but I don't remember any other questions by email. So we can take some new questions tonight if there's anything going on or questions you have related to other things. Doug, we'll give Doug our lead-off question for tonight then. I've been bumping into a lot of uh, mid-acts KJV folks lately. Yeah. I'm sorry. I am too. Yeah. Uh, who started that? Well, um, okay, so that's really two issues, right? Uh, the King James insanity, uh, they, they, they really, um, it's came out in the 80s and 90s, I want to say. Uh, I mean, just the last 20 or 30 years. And Gail Ripplinger was one of the authors. There's a guy named Mars. Uh, one of the guys lives here in Austin, even. Tex Mars, I think. Um, anyway, so they, yeah, they're on this kind of a bandwagon that says that the only English Bible you can read is the King James Bible, because the King James Bible is the authorized Bible, you know, like God authorized or something. Anyway, it's, that's, their, that's their thing, and they're wrong, they're completely wrong, um, but they believe that God super empowered the translators, those Anglican translators from the 16th century, that they were going to put together the perfect English Bible. 
and they think the King James Bible is the perfect English Bible. And I'm sorry, they're just they're wrong. And, and they're not based on the best Greek manuscripts, the best Hebrew manuscripts. Their translators were actually very weak in their Hebrew capacity. Uh, that's why there's so many owls in the Old Testament. They took 21 different Hebrew words that they, they said, well, that's a bird, some kind of a bird. So they translated it owl. You know, and they can't all be owls. They're different Hebrew words. You know, so things like that. Also, if you actually get an original, I mean, get a replica of one of the original printings, there are many places in the margins where it says meaning uncertain, meaning uncertain. And and so if they put meaning uncertain in the margin, that tells you they weren't inspired by God to have a miracle Bible to give it to the English-speaking world. That's just simple. Okay, so that's the first issue. Okay. Um, I, I try to deal with them gently. I, I figure they're saved, they love the Lord, but they're just they're mixed up, and I hope they get rescued out of that. Um, okay. The second question was on the hyper-dispensationalists, yes. the Acts, yeah. So, all right, we understand that, and I think the Bible defends, that um, Israel is currently on hold and the church is now the outworking of God's plan and program. And that from Pentecost to rapture, we have the church, the body of Christ. And in the church, there's no Jews, there's no Gentiles, there's no Americans or Ukrainians. We're just, we're, we're, we're saved. We're believers in Christ, all right? That's the church. And we, we take it from Pentecost of Acts 2 until the rapture. And then once we're caught up to be with the Lord in the, in the air, then God resumes his dealings with Israel. And so that's why there's a segment of Israel that follows the church there on the diagram. Well, the hyper-dispensationalists go beyond, and they actually kind of almost create a second church almost. They recognize Pentecost, but they recognize Pentecost as beginning the Jewish church, and then they recognize the call of Paul. They kind of peg it at Acts 13, and they say, with Paul, now you get the Gentile church. And so they really they distinguish between a Jewish church and a Gentile church, which misses the whole point that we are neither Jew nor Gentile, that we are both Jew and Gentile, that we are one body in Christ. But they, they, they're called hyper-dispensationalists for a reason, and they, so they distinguish there. And they'll tell you, by the way, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, get rid of all those. Those aren't for you. Those are for the Jewish church Christians. The only thing we should pay attention to is the writings of Paul. So they tell you Romans, you know, all of Paul's letters. That's our Bible because we're part of the Gentile church. Okay? It's all garbage. It's, it's totally wrong. Um, there's a guy up in Oklahoma, Les Fels, Fel, Feldick. Or Fezdick. Feldick, okay. Les Feldick. Well, I met one time, actually. And Glenn Carnegie actually has known him for years. Um, but yeah, he's got a lot of radio programs, a lot of books and literature and things. And he's probably the leading proponent of, of Acts 13. Uh, they actually, they call themselves the grace movement, too, which is really bad, because then they get confused with us when we try to call ourselves the grace movement. So, Anyway, that's where that crowd comes from. And I, don't, I wish I had any answers for you. I wish I had some encouragement, but um, it's not an easy debate, and, and most of them aren't interested in anything you have to say anyway, so uh, you, you probably won't get too far with them. Probably not. Thank yeah. you. All right. Well, pray for them. I believe they're saved. I just think they're screwed up on their, on their doctrine. Yeah. All right, good questions. What else tonight? Yes, ma'am. Let's come up here to uh, the one with the hand raised. Yeah. The um, 
you you use you talk about God's word that's magnified in accordance with His own name. What is that scripture? Psalms. <laughs> okay, I can work with that. <laughs> what is that scripture? Psalms one fifteen. I'm probably wrong on that. Okay, um, I'll find it. No worries. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't know. Yeah. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Psalm 138 and verse 2. <coughs> you have magnified your word according to all your name. That's a very important concept. Yeah. Other questions tonight? Going once, going twice. Okay. Thank you, Christopher. Appreciate that. All right, so when we're looking at Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9, we have a total of seven imperatives. And uh, we're just going to start here with point six in our outline because these are the final two imperatives. The sixth and seventh imperative center on the thinking and the action of born-again believers. I'm calling us rapture-ready. Rapture-ready, standing firm, joying crown kindred. That's us, all right? And so when we ended chapter 3, we saw that we were rapture ready. When we looked at chapter 4, we saw joy and crown kindred. And we saw the imperative to stand firm. And so we want to stand firm. Verse 8 talks about our mental attitude. What do we think about? What do we let our minds dwell on? Dwell on these things. Ponder these things. Impute these things. Reckon these things. All of which is a valid translation for logizomai, uh, to reckon, to compute, to consider, and uh, to credit. Just like my sins were credited to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness was credited to me, that's this verb. The verb is logizomai that addresses that. And so we're supposed to think about these six adjectives. Six adjectives and two nouns. The whatsoever is. Whatsoever is true, whatsoever is honorable, whatsoever is righteous. I prefer righteous to right. Whatsoever is pure, whatsoever is lovely, whatsoever is commendable. I'm rendering that commendable rather than of good repute. Whatever is commendable. And so those are six adjectives, all right? But you don't have to limit your thinking to just those six adjectives. You can add to that list if you want to. If you want to add to that list, if you want to add a seventh adjective or an eighth adjective or however many more you want to add, that's fine. As long as it, it, it is considered under these two nouns that then follow, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise. All right, so those two criteria show you really the ground rules, the parameters for what those six adjectives are dealing with. And this then gives us a concept for what we are to occupy with in our thinking. So we have a thought process that we are accountable for. And you might have noticed as we go through true, honorable, righteous, innocent or pure, lovely, and commendable. The word is euphemos, for a euphemism, that which is commendable. So all these things that we are to be thinking about, if we let our minds dwell there, our actions are going to follow, right? As you think in your heart, so you are. The way that you shape your thinking is going to determine your actions, going to determine the choices you make and and, uh, the things that you do in your temporal walk. All right. So now we move from thinking to doing. And moving to doing, we have um, really a a game like children. You know, children are copycats. 
we should be copycats, all right? We get past these, we, talk, we dealt with these, I think on Sunday. I don't remember a lot of Sunday, but I think we did those. All right, we want to practice these things. Put them into practice. Practice these things. In other words, do them and do them consistently. Do them diligently. Practice these things. Not simply as an academic application, but in manifold imitation of the Apostle Paul. It is a manifold imitation of the Apostle Paul. That's the application, all right? Because you've learned them, you've received them, you've heard them, you've seen them. Four different ways that you've received this truth. And now you're going to live it out, having learned it, having received it, having heard it, and having seen it. Why is this, um, why is this description coming in a fourfold manner, in a manifold manner, where it's multiplied as it's given? That's what we're dealing with here. All right. So the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. I love this. This is God has designed His Word to be learned and to be lived in a way that is compatible with how He designed human beings. How He designed human beings. We're all designed to be copycats. And from the littlest of children, we learn how to copycat. We can copycat adults. We can copycat our parents. We can copycat our older siblings. Younger siblings do better because I've got so many older siblings to learn from. But the idea that we are uh, created to be little mimics, little copycatters, is a good thing. Because that allows us to be imitators of our spiritual leaders, that allows us to be imitators of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to be. And so the idea of living out the Word of God is not as if your pastor is giving you a doctrine and it's just something from left field you never heard of before, and it sounds kind of strange, and you've never actually seen it put to use, but he sounds impressive, and it sounds theological, and it sounds real smart and everything, so I guess I better live that way. But then you start looking, and, and he's not living that way. He's not doing it. Well, why is he saying one thing and, and not doing it, or you know, not living the same thing out? Why is he such a hypocrite? And you can't be, and Paul is not, and that's what this is about. So the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. This gives a full spectrum of, of teaching but also living by example whereby these things then can be imitated. So it's simply more, so much more than just an academic exercise. So much more than just learning information, writing down your notes and then going home and promising you'll try your best. All right? It's about living the Word of God as the Bible is taught and as the Bible is lived. And this is uh, why we're here as a, as a body. Okay? A couple of points under this. All of the mental dwelling in the world is useless without application. All of the mental dwelling in the world is useless without application. And so you can be the greatest uh, fulfiller of Philippians 4.8 this world's ever seen and be a train wreck in your Christian walk. Because you're not living it out. You're not applying it, see. And so, yes, we want to learn verse 8. And we want to have our mind thinking about these things, whatever is right and pure and true. We want to think about those things. But we have to go past thinking about it. We have to start living it. We have to demonstrate it, see. Because not only are we watching Paul demonstrate it out, we ourselves now start to demonstrate it out. Whereby those that are younger than us can be looking at us as they learn and receive and hear and see in us 
and how we live the Word of God. So uh, clearly I think these uh, passages almost preach themselves in, uh, in different applications. But um, Matthew 7.24 goes well with this. Matthew, Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Do you see that? He hears and acts on them. May be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So if you take out those words and acts on them, it changes the, the entire verse. If you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, you can hear the warnings of Jesus, but without acting on those words, your house is not built upon the rock. If all you are is academic study only and you're not living it out, then your house is built upon the sand, which is the other side of this, uh, of this story. So um, if you hear these words of mine and act on them, maybe compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. But now notice verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. You notice that? I think sometimes people don't read this verse for what it says. They act like the, the other verse says, hear the words of Jesus, and this verse says, everyone who didn't listen to me. That's not what it says. They were also listening. They were listening same as the first group. They were in the same Bible class. But they weren't living the Word of God. They weren't acting it out. So when it says, and does not act on them, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Alright? And that's the difference. The difference is not learning. They both learn the same doctrine. The difference is application. And the fools did not make the application the way the wise man did. Alright? Also you'll notice uh, the rain and the floods and the winds are not optional. They're going to happen. We're going to have that kind of testing in life. That's the way it works. That's the nature of, of Christianity and the angelic conflict in this, uh, in this fallen world. So we are going to have testing. We have to make application. Also in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And the Great Commission. I mean, man, we all know this passage, right? Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, and what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. And I think people want to stop the verse right there. It doesn't stop right there. Teaching them what? teaching them to observe. That's to keep and to do. To observe all that I commanded you. Not teaching them to learn and keep on learning and learn more and learn more and learn more. Yes, we do keep on learning, but we have to live out what we're learning. That's the point. Observation is application. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Strictly speaking, the the promise of His presence is with the application side, not with the, the learning side, which I find interesting. 
when it comes right down to it. In some respects we could view the Holy Spirit as involved on the learning side while Jesus is involved on the application side because Jesus is the one who leads us in ministry. Romans chapter 2 and verse 17. And really 17 and following I guess. It's not just verse 17 by itself. All right. I'm also suspecting that maybe I meant verse 27 there. That's curious to me. Romans 2.17 If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and you know His will and you know His will is, is that sufficient? Is knowledge sufficient? If you know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law an embodiment of knowledge and of truth. Now if that's as far as you take it, you've got a problem. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? In other words, are you doing what you're preaching? Are you doing what you know? Or do you just know this and feel good about yourself because you know more, you know, you know better than the next guy. You know more than he does. See, you've got to be a doer as well as a learner, somebody who learns the word of God. You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Do you, uh, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And so I think in all of these things, this is this is the. Uh, the uh, impact of this passage is dealing with the application. Alright, so that's Romans 2. Maybe the most obvious text of all is James chapter 1. And this is where you thought I was going first. Probably should have gone there first. James chapter 1 in verse 22. I do like um, the verses that lead up to this. In verse 19, This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So Bible class is important. We want to be quick to hear, we want to learn. For the anger of man has not achieved the righteousness of God. Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. This is the dynamic of what happens when the living and abiding word of God gets put inside of you. It's more than an academic exercise. It's more than just learning information. We're learning, but our soul is engaged and we're receiving the Word of God. It's being implanted in our souls. And then it goes on to say, but prove yourselves doers of the Word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. The worst lies in the world are the ones that we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves the things that we, that we ourselves know we want to hear. And so we get very good at lying to ourselves and then we start believing our own lies. And how terrible is that? And uh, the big item here, of course, if you think that just learning more doctrine is sufficient and then, then you delude yourself to say, okay, I'm in good shape, I'm great, I know a lot. And yet, <laughs> I've said this before, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, He's not going to ask us a single Bible quiz question. He's not going to ask us, what do you know? 
He's going to take fire and He's going to apply it to what we did. Our divine good production is going to be judged by the fire. And He's not going to ask us what we know. He's going to critique what we did. And so that becomes, I think, the, the impact of why this principle is so vital. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, and then once he looks at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. And so uh, how easy is it to take a quick glance at the mirror and then walk away and forget everything you just saw? But when you're a doer of the Word, you can't do that. The doer of the Word, carrying the, the metaphor forward, the analogy then, it's like if you're doing the Word of God, you're bringing that mirror with you everywhere you go. Because you didn't just take a quick look at it and depart, you've got it right there with you. The standard of the Word of God is constantly before you as you live it out, as you make the application. That becomes, uh, that becomes significant also. All right. So that's uh, James chapter 1. We also have chapter 2. And this is the debate between uh, and the different kinds of justification and the idea of faith and works. Even though, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. The idea that you know something or that you have faith in something or you're under conviction for something and then you're not doing anything about it, what is that? That's a dead Christian walk right there. Faith without works? If it's by itself, being by itself is dead. And someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. I will show you my faith by my works. See? And we're not talking about getting saved in this chapter. This is not about justification for eternal life, but this is the outworking of our Christian walk in our experiential sanctification. And this is where uh, we get justified by our works, as the works themselves testify to the faith that is the reality. And so this becomes vital as well. It's, it's curious when you, when you encounter a brother and he's not living anything out, but he claims to know a lot, how much do you really know? I would suspect he doesn't know as much as he thinks he knows. That he probably thinks he knows a whole lot more than what he really knows. And he may have a whole lot of gnosis. How much of that became epinosis? And how much of that is really the sophia, the wisdom, and the oida of the, uh, the full knowledge he would have for us to, to possess? I would submit not so much. <coughs> All right, so that's uh, chapter 2. Chapter 4. The problem with not doing anything is that uh, some of the things you're not doing include the things you should be doing. And so by the fact that you're not doing anything means you're not doing what you should be doing and that becomes a sin of omission. If you know the thing to do and you do it not, you sin. I think this was one of the first scripture melodies that, that Doug ever did way back in the day. One of the very first ones, wasn't it? All right. So therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. This is a sin of omission. This is a sin by not doing something. You should have done it. That's a sin. And so applying the Word of God when you, once you're under the conviction, once you have the teaching and this is the doctrine and this is the application and then you choose not to do it, that's a sin of omission. You're, you're carnal before you realize it because you're choosing not to do what He's called you to do in, uh, in those things. So you have the, the different things there. It's also too, I think, part of what in economics, if you study economics, 
we talk about the opportunity cost. And we talk about what you lose when, um, when you're wasting your money. <laughs> what, you, you, what you lose when you're spending your money on foolish things, right? And so um, you do something sinful, you do something carnal, you do something foolish, and you, let's just say, you uh, take a bunch of money and you blow it somehow, okay? Well, your loss is bigger than just the, the, the value amount, the dollar amount that you just threw away. Because on top of that comes the opportunity loss, comes from the loss of production of where you could have put that money. You see what I'm saying? So because you threw it over here, instead of putting it someplace productive, instead of serving the Lord or supporting missions or supporting a local church or something of that nature, where then, so it's a, really it's a double loss. It's, it's a loss because you threw it away in the first place and then it's a double loss because you're not getting the productivity out of what it could have been had you been obedient to the Lord in His calling. See, And this is true for money, this is true for time, this is true for our gifts and ministries. You know, so in terms of time, you know, you have a certain number of hours in a week, and we all have the same amount. And you've got a certain number of hours that you should be using for, oh, I don't know, maybe preparing a sermon or something. Okay? But instead, um, you decided to play 3,000 games of Scrabble in a week. Nothing wrong with Scrabble. A game or two in moderation is marvelous. But when you've played so many thousands of games and you're eating up all of your time and, and now your family's suffering, your kids are suffering, your flock is suffering, you don't have a sermon ready to go so you decide to uh, you could stand for an hour and teach Scrabble anagrams or something. You could, you know, because where your heart is, there your treasure is, you know, and it's clear where your, where your mind spends most of its time. And so that becomes opportunity lost. Opportunity lost. When we're frittering away our time and things that we shouldn't be. All right, so this is uh, the sin of omission from James 4.17. All the mental dwelling in the world is useless without application. Doctrines learned and traditions received, the things heard in Paul's teaching and seen in Paul's life, this stresses the dynamic of ministry with personal engagement between a shepherd and his flock. The, do- the, the doctrines learned and the traditions received, and, th- and I think we can demonstrate that as well in the difference between what we learn and what we receive, and then what we hear and what we see. I think we've got two pairs here, two tandems. In fact, I think this is a verse that would fit marvelously in the book of Proverbs. I think that uh, we have a, a, a distich structure like we would find in the book of Proverbs, only Paul is composing it in Greek and he's uh, composing it for the book of Philippians. But we have learned and received on the one hand, we also have heard and seen on the other, and it's given in a pattern of four, learned, received, heard, and seen. All right, And so we have doctrines learned and traditions received Doctrines learned and traditions received. Okay, And I hope we're clear. We know the difference between a doctrine and a tradition. You know, there's the doctrine of communion. 
that we can support biblically and we can develop it from the Gospels or we can develop it from 1 Corinthians, that we can have uh, the, the doctrine of communion. But then we have the traditions. We have communion on the second Sunday of the month. Where did that come from? <laughs> okay, It's not from the Bible. There's no Bible verse that says uh, do communion on the second Sunday of the month. But that's just the tradition that we received based upon how we've always done it. Okay? How it's always been done, which is sometimes an idol and sometimes a snare. Uh, we've never done it that way before. Okay? Well, that's part of, though, of the, the traditions received. And when it's time to start a new tradition, we start a new tradition. Not any problem with that. Some time back, we started a new tradition where every time we do a baptism, it's at Barton Springs Pool. Okay? Notice that we have a Bible verse that tells us we have to do our baptisms there? No. We get the doctrine of baptism from the Bible, but then our traditions, our customs, our practices, how we do it, and what, we, what we've found to be beneficial and a blessing, um, those, those will adjust and change over the years. And who knows? Maybe after I'm gone, the new pastor will come in and decide to, to keep some of them. Or he'll decide to get rid of as many as he possibly can, as quickly as he possibly can. Okay, and that's fine. The doctrines, though, he's got to prove those from the scripture. We understand the difference. All right. So there's the doctrines learned, the traditions received, but then the things you have heard and seen in me, heard and seen in me. And so this now brings in uh, these other dimensions. All right, the dimension of hearing, hearing what the man has to say, but then seeing, seeing what the man has to do. Okay? And if you're hearing one thing and seeing something else, that's a problem. That means he's a hypocrite, and that means uh, you've got a problem there. All right? Either he needs to go and you've got to get a faithful pastor, or you need to go and find a faithful pastor somewhere else. See? But all of these things come together, and I think they come together in a, in a neat way to stress this dynamic. This is a church-age dynamic. This is what he's provided for us in the body of Christ. A dynamic of ministry with personal engagement between a shepherd and his flock. This is what happens, and a tape recorder can't replicate this, that you can get content, you can get doctrine and information, but as far as receiving a tradition and hearing and seeing, that's, that's absent in, uh, in these church alternatives that have become popular in, in different ways. There is a personal, a dynamic of ministry with personal engagement I think the promise when where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in your midst. That's a, that's a dynamic. That means there's a power there. A dynamic means a power. That means that Jesus Christ is with us here tonight because His body has assembled. We are here in His name. We are filled with His Holy Spirit. We have assembled at this place, at this time, for His glory. And so there's a dynamic at work there, and he's faithful. We're here to study, we're here to learn, we're here to grow. And there's a dynamic of what happens in this. And so we have it. I think the two earliest of Paul's books, well Galatians is probably the earliest, but then 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are the next two that Paul wrote. And these are among the most intimate of anything Paul ever wrote. To this congregation in Thessalonica that, that loved him, they loved the Word of God. They were very tender towards each other. And you'll see what I mean 
as we, uh, as we look at this. All right, First Thessalonians chapter 2. And there's a dynamic at work. All right. Get past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and you get to First and Second Thessalonians. In chapter two. And what's most special about this is you might remember on Paul's second missionary journey, they had been arrested. They went to jail in Philippi. And then the earthquake and the, and the jailer got saved, but then they had to leave Philippi. And they left Philippi, the next place they went here was Thessalonica. And they come into town and more of the conflict happens. And they can't stay very long. They only stay for three weeks. They stay a very brief period of time. In, uh, and yet in that time, they developed this, um, this uh, intimacy with these, with these believers. Okay? So... Um, I do want to read this. Just, are you familiar with the backstory on this? Acts chapter 17. Don't spend a ton of time on it, but you'll see Acts 17 verses 1 through 8. That's your story. Acts 17 verses 1 through 8. And so I'm going to get to Thessalonians here in a moment, but in Acts 17 uh, they traveled through Amphipolis, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Alright, so that's less than a month that he's there. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. That was his message. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob. All right? If you ever need to create a mob, now you know where to find the wicked men. Go to the marketplace and they're sitting there. They're not doing anything. They're just lazy bums doing nothing. And so now uh, they can form a mob and set the city in an uproar And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, that's pretty smart too. If there's a mob on the way, hide your pastor. (laughs) Okay, just saying. If there's a mob on the way, and you know that they're up to no good. All right. So then they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And so this is, uh, this is just a bribe. This is, this is just a pure cash shakedown, payout. And uh, the police say, we don't want any trouble. We want those guys out of town. Pay us some money, make the problem go away. And make sure that Paul doesn't come back. And so that's what they had to do. All right. And so that's the background then. When we go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
And Paul describes the time that he spent there with them. He says, uh, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not a waste of time. It was three great weeks, and it was all that God gave us, but that's the three weeks we had. And after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. And I love that. Is the, is the devil not happy with your ministry? It, it, can you tell that he doesn't like what you're doing? Is he throwing obstacles in your way? Great. Do more of that. <laughs> okay? Be confident to do even more. Paul doesn't say, well, we had a rough time at Philippi, so we, we backed off a bit. We decided to be more careful. He doesn't say that. He doesn't get politically correct. He doesn't adjust his tone. He says we were more emboldened to preach to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our gospel does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been entrusted by God to be entrusted, oh, I'm sorry, approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. So if you're in ministry, if God has called you to service, that's a trust. He is entrusting the ministry of His Word to you. And that's a trust to take very seriously. That is a trust. What are you doing with with the trust He's given you? Are you being faithful to His trust? Verse 5 says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. <coughs> Excuse me. Other people can come to town and you can just tell that they're in it for the money. You can tell that they're real slick and they're very flattering and they, uh, they compliment everybody and they really get, the, the, uh, they get their audience all, uh, all uh, in love with them so they can get the money from them. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. How many apostles made it to Thessalonica before Paul got there? None. They were the first apostles to cross into Europe. They were the first to bring the gospel to Philippi. (coughs) Excuse me. All right. Here we go, Lord. Almost done. But then he said, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother or as a nurse tenderly cares for her own children. (coughs) Look how tender this language is. Like he's a nursing mother, okay? Okay. And, uh, of course, Paul's not a nursing mother. He couldn't nurse if he wanted to. But he uses the language. He says that's how tender he was with them. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Think about it. Three weeks. How dear can you get to somebody in three weeks? Well, Paul had capacity on day one, to arrive and pour his soul into these believers and uh, and to have ministry here. We should learn from that. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, 
so as to not be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. We also learn that while he was in Thessalonica, Philippi had sent a couple of gifts for him. And so the, the, the money was coming from Philippi to help defray some of the costs here. And you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. More tender language. See, this is not just a college classroom, an academic setting, a, a dry academic information and, and droning on and on with this fact and that fact. This is, Paul says he's giving them his very life. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That is a personal engagement. That is a dynamic that happens with face to face ministry. This is what happens if you don't have a hireling, but if you have a shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd loves the sheep. And so this is the, the dynamic of what God has designed for the church age. Two more verses. Verse 13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You realize how powerful that is? Paul was happy that they were positive. Not because it was to his credit, not because uh, you know they weren't accepting it because Paul said so and here's doctrine but because it's the living and abiding Word of God. And they were thrilled to receive it. They were, rece- they were thrilled to receive it with humility to receive the Word implanted, able to save their souls. Look at this. The Word of God performs its work in you who believe. There's no earthly information that does that. No earthly facts, no data, no gnosis, no earthly information does that. But the Word of God does. It's alive and powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword, okay? I mean, think about facts that you know. You know that pi is 3.14159265 you know, or maybe you've got maybe you you got more digits than that. And we'll have a competition to see who can do more decimal places for pi. Big deal. That information does not save you. That information does not come alive. That information is not eternally living and breathing and dwelling richly and saving you. But the Word of God does. It'll wake you up at all hours of the day and night and it'll say, application, live this. Your brother needs it, your sister needs it, your flock needs it, your wife needs it. Live this. The Word of God's powerful. All right. For you, brethren, became imitators. So look at that. The the imitation dynamic. You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So the churches in Judea got hammered by unbelieving Judeans. The the church of Thessalonica got hammered by unbelieving Thessalonicans, unbelieving uh, Macedonians. And that's what happens. All right, over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Ooh, and if I have time, I probably won't, but if I have time, I can take us down a side trip in chapter 2. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verses 6 through 10. Verse 6 says, We commend you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother 
who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So there's doctrine, tradition. The doctrines you have learned and received, the things you have heard and seen in us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Remember, first thing Paul does is, well, when he gets to Corinth, first thing he does, he starts making tents with, with Priscilla and Aquila. Everywhere he went, if he didn't have the funds uh, supporting him, then he went to work and he supported himself. Everywhere he went, he set that as the example. We did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we keep working night and day so we would not be a burden to any of you. <clears throat> and you see the dynamic here at work. He's uh, working at night so he can pastor during the day so that he can be a blessing to these Thessalonians and, uh, and not have to charge them for it. And even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. And that's uh, hunger can be a great motivation. And it's uh, designed biblically to be the best motivation of all. You want to eat? All right. Here's the, uh, here's the work mandate. So this is uh, what we're dealing with here. The doctrines that are learned, the traditions that are received, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Do these things. Put them into practice. Don't just do them once or twice to see if you like it. Do it all the time. Put them into practice. Live them out. Make them a regular part of your Christian walk. And the God of peace will be with you. All right. So that ties together the last on that. <coughs> just a brief moment, if, uh, if my voice holds out. Uh, if you're still in Second Thessalonians, look back to chapter 2. <coughs> and this is uh, extra credit, no uh, extra charge for this. There is a prophecy question out there that used to be understood in a pretty straightforward manner and now it's not. Or now it seems like there's a generation of pastors that are staying away from it. And I don't understand, but let's look at it. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, um, Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, we're talking about the tribulation, we're talking about the rapture and the second advent and the tribulation and all these things. And it's ripe for false teaching. It will trip people up and get them in a panic. So with respect to uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that's the rapture, right? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our episunagoge, gathering together to Him. That's the rapture of the church. So concerning the rapture, don't be so quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. If you know your rapture doctrine, then no one should be able to trick you into thinking that you're in the tribulation right now. Because you know better. You know that you can't be in the tribulation. The day of the Lord is the tribulation in the millennium. How can you be in the day of the Lord if the rapture hasn't happened yet? And I know the rapture hasn't happened yet because I'm still here. And I'm still suffering with cedar allergies. I've got a sore throat. There's no rapture tonight. Not yet. Okay? <clears throat> so let no one in any way deceive you for the day of the Lord will not come unless the departure comes first the rapture comes first 
And it's probably translated apostasy in your Bible, but that's, that's a problem. We can fix that. The departure comes first. Then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So once we're gone, Antichrist can be revealed. While we're still here, he can't be revealed. If he's even alive yet. I hope he is. I hope he was born a long time ago. I hope he's an old man. I hope he's alive. Because I want to be that close to the rapture tonight. But if he is alive, we don't know who he is. He is a little horn. He hasn't grown to be a big horn yet. He's a little obscure guy from nowhere. Nobody ever heard of him. He's nobody famous. So you don't know his name. All right. Now, this is what comes. Now, in this, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Well, there's no temple yet. The Jews want to build a temple, but there's a mosque sitting there right now. There will be a temple there someday, and Antichrist is going to sit down in it and say that he's God. All right. But you know what restrains him now? Verse 6, the restrainer is a what? You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the restrainer is a what in verse 6 and a he in verse 7. That's the Holy Spirit who's both a what and a he in this context. Now, the real question, I've got just two minutes or three minutes left here. It comes with respect to what happens after Antichrist is revealed, after we're gone and Antichrist is revealed and he starts to spread his lies around the world. God himself is going to send a delusion. Right now he sent a restraint. Once the restraint is gone, he's going to send a delusion, a strong delusion. Colonel Thiem wrote a book called Strong Delusion and he's 100% correct and I still teach it the way he taught it. But people are abandoning that these days and it's breaking my heart. All right. So verse 11. Now, this is um, the false wonders of Antichrist and how Satan empowers his message. And it's going to talk about the deception of wickedness for those who perish, for the perishing ones. Remember, we're not the perishing ones. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So I'm a believer, I'm not a perishing one. But these guys are perishing ones. And the perishing ones are going to buy Antichrist lies. Deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They had a deadline, that deadline passed, and now judgment is coming. Whatever point of time prior to verse 10 was their cutoff. Whatever point of time prior to verse 10, I'm calling it the rapture, but other people call it something else, and other people pretend that they can't know what it is, and so they don't even try to teach the passage. That's not an answer. So for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence. Notice that? For this reason. God has a reason, and He knows what it is, and He does it. He sends a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who do not believe the truth at some point of time prior to verse 11 but took pleasure in wickedness. And so I have a diagram this way and I'm going to just give you this to think about, chew on it as I colored it. 
orange and yellow and green. All right. For they, 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 they. And then you, brethren, God has chosen for salvation. All right. But recognize this strong delusion. It's for this reason God sends the delusion, right? Are you with me? So if it's for this reason that God sends the delusion, the reason has to precede the delusion. Has to. People are saying today it follows. Can't. Because it's for this reason. It follows the reason. And then it says, so that they will believe what is false. That comes after the delusion. The for this reason is before and the so that is after. And God sending the delusion is a consequence for the rejection of the gospel prior to the rapture of the church. That's the issue. All right? So just recognize this. There will be people saved in the tribulation. There will be more people saved in the tribulation than you can count. But they're not the people that rejected the gospel in the church age. All right? They were not born yet, or they were too young, or they were children, or they had never heard, or whatever the case may be. And there's, there's numbers of them that can't even be... So the greatest evangelism revival the planet has ever seen will be in the tribulation. But nobody will be saved in the tribulation if they rejected the gospel in the church age. That is a fact. And to teach this passage otherwise damages the, uh, the syntax of the passage. For this reason precedes the delusion and so that follows the delusion and this is the, uh, the sequence of it here. In order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Okay? There's a context for that and that's the rapture of the church as the cutoff. That's their deadline. That's their opportunity. Alright, so that's no charge for that. Think about it. Give it some thought and uh, if you have more questions on that ask me on Sunday or uh, ask me next week on uh, Wednesday night, question and answer night and we'll, uh, we'll take it from there. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the book of Philippians, Father, and what you're teaching us in these classes. I pray, Father, that we would think what we're supposed to think and do what we're supposed to do. I pray that we would dwell on the things that are proper and that we would not dwell on the things we should not be not dwelling on. And Father, then, with our minds where they're supposed to be, let us live it out, Father, in a way that glorifies your Son. We want to be doers of the Word, not merely hearers who delude ourselves. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right.